Welcome to Disruptive Successor, a show for next generation leaders in family businesses and entrepreneurs who want to disrupt the status quo and take their existing business to a whole new level. We all know that what got us here isn't going to get us there. This show will provide inspiration, advice, and resources to help you create massive impact. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Hi, it's Jonathan Goldhill, and welcome back to another episode of the Disruptive Successor Show. Today, I'm really excited to have as my guest, Bill Yo. Bill is, has held a number of leadership roles in his 25-plus year career at his family's business. He is chairman of Yo and co-owner of Day and Zimmerman, Yo's parent company, a 45,000-employee, century-old business. As a third-generation owner and the youngest of five siblings, he has a rare and personal view of the complex and human dynamics behind large, multi-generation family businesses. Bill speaks and writes regularly about leadership, relationships, and family business using his proprietary methodology, Familytics. He recently published Our Way, a biography on his father and his family, which the Philadelphia Inquirer calls a transgenerational saga, drama and loss alongside triumph and growth, an argument that it's possible to succeed at work and family with all the stress. Our Way won the gold award from the Nonfiction Authors Association. Bill has published business and literary articles and poetry and produced an award-winning feature film about human relationships. He has a second nonfiction, faith-based book preparing for publication and teaches a class at Wharton on family business. Bill, welcome to the show today. Thanks, Jonathan. It's great to be here. You know, you have quite a a biography. and, And so where I usually like to start is with where it all started for you. A a lot of my clients get their start uh, and many of them are, let's say, for example, in construction businesses and they they get their start by by following around with their father or and and maybe their brothers in either the back of a pickup truck or somehow on the floor of the manufacturing facility and they they kind of grow up in the business as a teenager that's where they spend their summers their after school on weekends uh my last guest that was his exact story before taking mm-hmm. over the business and and most of these are smaller businesses than yours so what was your experience like? Did you grow up in the business? What was the size of the business that you were growing up in? What was it like? Just kind of take us back to your childhood. Yeah, sure. No, it's the, the, the great place to start. So yeah, I definitely grew up, you know, 
immersed in the business. It was it was part of our family. It was part of our upbringing. It was a, a part of a lot of our socializing and, and gathering. You know, my my parents sort of hosting different events for you know executives and management teams, and you know occasionally going on retreats that the family would participate in. Um, you know, I spent probably through high school, probably from middle school up through college, I spent about half my summers working in the family business in different roles and about half my summers working, doing other kinds of things. Um, and that just kind of evolved to be a nice little blend of those two different things. So, um, and I worked in a number of different parts of the business. So yes, it was always part of what we did. I'm the youngest of five. All five of us worked uh, on and off in the business through school and ultimately all five of us joined the business uh, together as we all graduated from college. And eventually, you know, some of us worked elsewhere um, uh, at, at different times, but, and then we bought, uh, the five of us bought out our father in the late nineties. And at the time uh, the business was about a little over a billion dollars in revenue and about 16,000 employees. And we had an average age of 32 at the time. So there's, there's a lot of implications around succession and governance and things that, that we'll get into that, that have to deal with that. So. But yeah, it really was part of who I was from, from the beginning, as, as you know, you said, a lot of your clients have that experience. Yeah. And it was quite a large business. And uh, um, do you have children yourself and do your siblings have children? Are they being prepared for the business? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Yes. So my wife, my wife and I have three kids. We have one out of school who's working in the management consulting field. So a great sort of proving ground for failing business, whether he ultimately comes into the business or not. And then I have one in college and one in high school. Um, so three of us, three, three of the five siblings own the business now. Two, two of the siblings have cashed out over the years and, and are off doing different things. Or actually, one, one has passed away, but was off doing different things and the other's off doing different things. But my two brothers and I who own the business, we have 11 children between the, or among the three of us. And of those 11, uh, one is in the business full-time, one is in the business part-time, and then, as I said, you know, a few others who are still in school have, have done some summer work there. So, but, you know, everybody in different ways is being prepared, if not to come in as employees, you know, certainly to, you know, be owners and stewards of the business over time. So makes sense. And is there any policy in the Constitution or verbal around they should go work for someone else? They should go work for a management consulting or a construction or a staffing yes. company yeah no there is we we like you know a lot of a lot of your clients i'm sure have a, a family employment policy with regard to the business and uh it, it talks about you know how to work at the business during your summer vacations but uh most importantly talks about if you do want to join the business full-time um you know you have to have a, a bachelor's degree and at least two years of experience in a related field and we use that term related field that's kind of intentionally vague. It doesn't say exactly that it has to be in one of our spaces, but it also doesn't mean to go, you know, kind of give surfing lessons in Hawaii for two years because that's not a business we're in and then, you know, come back kind of thing. Um, and and you know, we think that's important. A few of us did that growing up, not as a matter of policy, but a matter of just good practice. And, uh, you know, it, it, it had a real impact on me and my siblings who had a chance to do that kind of work. So, Bill, tell our listeners a little bit about your father. What was he like as a as a person? Um, did he have brothers that were in the business as well? But but tell us about his like psychological makeup. Was he was he a natural? What like was he natural at building uh, all of you into team players and working together as a, as family members? And and was succession and transition an, an easy thing or did he sure. go 
screening like some parents do or yeah yeah no it's uh it's a really interesting story as you mentioned i i literally researched and wrote an entire book on his story and um and thankfully he's he's still with us he'll he'll turn 86 actually a week from today which we're real happy about um but he had a you know you mentioned that that philadelphia inquirer article he had a really tough upbringing um and and a really not a very healthy relationship with his father who his father really started the business um and uh they did not have a very close relationship you know particularly from my father's point of view um in fact my father had to outbid two public companies to to maintain control of the business and in succession to give you an idea little idea where his father's psyche was but my father really turned into a very natural very charismatic leader very much very much a people person a delegator uh, he was all about growth. He was all about, uh, you know, customer culture, customer centric, empowering people, you know, treating people, you know, let, letting people sort of go, you know, do their thing and be successful. Um, and one of his real drivers was to make a business that was big enough and diverse enough that all five of his kids could have a place to enter in there and not be sort of tripping over each other. And, and you know, now with the benefit of hindsight and having, you know, three children myself, it, it's miraculous that, that my parents raised five children, all of whom went into the business. Um, you know, just really an incredible, incredible accomplishment. Now, two of the five of us, my, my two older brothers remain full-time in the business. I'm, I'm in more of a part-time uh, relationship with it right now, but still a full, you know, full, full-fledged owner. Um, but yeah, that was a real, a real passion of his, particularly in light of the animosity he had with his dad and the struggles around succession there was to have a have a thoughtful um you know peaceful succession process which we did and a business that was as i said broad enough for all of us to come in and and you know do things that we had in common because we're all from the same family but also given our different skill sets and interests and passions that we could you know all kind of flourish in the business for a while and and we all worked there together for I'm going to say about five years, and then one of my brothers decided he wanted to leave. And then a few years, a few years later, our sister decided that she wanted to leave. And those were both, you know, amicable, amicable separations also. So, and are they still owners in there? Have they maintained their same ownership? Uh, no. So, so we had a, a requirement. It was one of the very few things, one of the very few stipulations my father put in when we bought him out was that you had to work at the business to own stock in the business. You know, he didn't want to be in one of those situations where you had people who were kind of living off the fat of the land, you know, and other people were working hard and they were benefiting from it. So, and so we all knew that going in. And so when my two siblings each decided that they wanted to leave, they knew that that would, you know, require them to tender their stock, which, you know, they both did. And we did an independent valuation and, you know, an arm's length transaction with that. Um, but interestingly, more recently, probably within the last 10 years, we've removed that stipulation, the shareholders agreement that you have to own stock to work at the business because we didn't want to overly hamstring what people would do to, you know, in terms of their work-life balance, their professional interests, their passions. You know, we really believe, you know, people, if people are going to be the best versions of themselves and the best contributors to society, if they're able to pursue the things that they're most passionate about and, and engaged with. Um, now, what we, what we did, and, and, you know, this is a longer conversation is, when we removed that requirement from the shareholders agreement, we took all of our voting stock and put that into a voting trust. And the trustees of the voting trust have to have a strong affiliation to the business. So wow. we still have the people who are making the major decisions on behalf of the business be those who are most involved with the business itself. And if there aren't people in the family that meet that criteria, those voting trust trustee positions go to non-family executives or board members, because our belief is really that what's best for the long-term health of the business 
is what's best for the long-term health of the family from an economic perspective. Very thoughtfully put together. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, just a couple of comments. One, it sounds like the contentious relationship between your dad and your dad's dad was very much a, uh, a sign of the times that they were shaped by the the current you know, I think your grandfather was probably born under an age when, you know, command and control leadership was the style. Yes. yes. Today, certainly, you know, even more so with uh, um, millennials and, and Gen X's and Z's, they want to be so much a part of the decision making. Mm-hmm. They want, you know, more consensus, almost like like the corporations become more democratized. Mm-hmm. And so, it seems as though your father was ahead of the curve in terms of that. And uh, um, that to keep your business even more relevant, you're, you keep having to stay ahead of the curve. Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a great observation. And, and, um, and I think you're right, particularly about my grandfather's generation. But one of the interesting things about our dynamics, you had asked earlier about my father's siblings. So my father does have siblings. His father was married four times. So he had my father has one full sibling and several step and step, step and half siblings, but none of them came into the business. So even though my father was second generation or, or G2, as we like to say in the in the in our yeah. family business speak, and you know how much family business speak we have, even though he was G2, he didn't have any siblings. So he really was still kind of a G1 dynamic. So even though my brothers and I are third generation, we're still at that kind of sibling partnership level. We don't have cousins involved. It's not till our fourth generation that cousins would be introduced, which is typically a third generation dynamic. So, um, you know, from a governance perspective, you know, I I like to say when there's only one person, just the patriarch or just the matriarch, it's the golden rule, the person who has the gold rules. So you don't need a lot of things around governance and decision rights and, and, um, you know, different decision-making bodies and how they interact and don't interact when there's just one person. And um, so when we came in, I said, you know, like I said, with the five of us and being relatively young, we did a lot of things around governance uh, as a reaction to the fact that the dynamics had really changed going from one owner to five owners and, and one owner with a lot of experience and, you know, decades of that street cred that we did not yet have. So, um, you know, as you, as you know, well, every succession looks different from the one before it. And, and so that's something we spent a lot of time in and continue to spend a lot of time with is looking at succession. And have you worked with many professional advisors in this capacity, or have you been able to drive this process yourselves without outside help? What's, what's no, it's, it's a great question. No, I, I, one of the things that I stress as much as any is how important it is to work with professional advisors. So we've been engaged with full-time engaged with one form or another of a family business coach since the mid nineties. Um, and I really can't stress that enough, both from the technical business succession side of things, but maybe more so from the interpersonal and relation, relation side of things, relationship side of things. If that stuff isn't right, forget about all the business stuff. Um, so I think, you know, that's a key part of it. Another key part of it is we, we have gone to literally hundreds of different networking events and conferences and, you know, you, you name it, we, we've been involved, we participated, we take notes. We have, you know, SharePoint sites where we store everything and, um, you know, just really can't impress enough on folks how important it is to learn what others have done. And, and one of the things that I, you know, when I have a chance to go to work or talk to other people is 
for, for, for our experience, where we landed on, say, our employment policy or our governance model, whatever else, is, is really not as important, in my opinion, to other people as the process, as going through the process as an ownership group, with or without management, intergeneration or not, whatever your dynamics are, going through that process as a group is, to me, more important than whether you land on, you have to work outside of the business for two years or five years, or you don't, or you need a degree, or you don't kind of thing, or you're going to, you know, whatever kind of business you're going to be. So, uh, but yeah, so working with advisors and and getting out there and learning what other families are doing is is really, really critical. Super. That's a great suggestion. And what are some of the other things that you think are key things that people ought to be thinking about or um, or aware of as they go through the process of multi-generational transfer? And maybe these are things that you talk about in your class at Wharton or just, you know, things when you're networking out at yeah. conferences. Well, I think, yeah, yeah the, the, the networking is, again, I can't stress that enough. Um, but the communications thing, I do want to come back to that again. And, and we, one of the first things we did the, the five of us, the siblings, when our father announced that he was getting ready to retire, was we engaged with a with a consultant who really worked more on the interpersonal side and the communication sides of things. And we did retreats and we had regular meetings and different things. And a lot of it was just understanding where are we all coming from? So, so as an example, uh, I'm the youngest of five and there's a five-year age gap between myself and my next oldest sibling. And so growing up, I always had this kind of dynamic that there was the four of them and me, and that they were sort of this club, which I wasn't a member and really wasn't, didn't really feel like I was invited to kind of thing. And they in turn had this thing where like, even though I was the youngest, they sort of saw me as trying to be a little aloof to them. So, you know, we sort of were able to peel that onion back a little bit and understand like, oh, wait, we, we all have misperceptions about how we're getting along. And, and so Clearing that air to me um, could not be more important. We, we do something at the beginning of every meeting. We meet six times a year, every time with our, with our coach, uh, our shareholder meetings, that is. And we kick off every meeting with something we call hotspots. Yep. And so when we launch the meeting, before we get into anything on the business agenda, are there any hotspots going on between or among any of us? Professional, personal, you know, spouse-wise, cousin-wise, uncle-aunt-wise, things that might be getting in the way of the business. And it's really important for us to clear any of that air before we dive into it. So, um, and then the last thing I'll say in terms of other practices is the whole idea about having what I, what I call a master plan. So over the years, we would learn like, oh, different, oh boy, we need to think about a dividend policy. We need to think about philanthropic activities. Um, what are we gonna do about training the next generation of family members? What happens when we get to the point where we may need a family council or a family office? So we've gotten to the point over the years or over the decades now where even though we are maybe not engaged in all these different activities, we kind of have them all in a plan. Like what are our short-term things we work on, our medium-term and our long-term? And we may move things, you know, sort of through, across those columns, but we have this master plan where we know everything that needs to happen at some point. Um, and the, the biggest thing we've learned with the master plan, and it's really hard, is the best time to do planning is when things are going well. And when things are going well, you kind of, the natural human nature is, well, don't screw it up. Don't, don't talk about difficult, challenging things because we don't want to screw up this going well that we have. But that's the time you really need to do the tough planning because when things aren't going well, when somebody decides they want to leave the business, when somebody gets sick or their spouse gets sick or, or something catastrophic happens to the business, whatever disruptive type things can happen, you want to make sure you have your planning done because by the time you get into that type of the situation, everybody's motives are no longer aligned. So, interesting. 
So uh, a natural segue question is, um, what are your thoughts about the idea of having a disruptive successor? <laughs> Obviously, you know that that's what the title of this podcast. Yes. Yeah. And feel free to be as frank as you like. Some people have asked me, like, why would you have that title? I, mm-hmm. I would never, as an entrepreneur, want to have right, right. my successor be disruptive. But yeah, well, it's super, it's super provocative too. I love it. Um, you know, and I, and I, what I think about it from a successor perspective is, um, you know, as I said, no, no two successions look alike. Every succession looks looks different than the one before it. But also, it, I think in a lot of ways, it's a reaction to the one before it. So, you know the succession that we had looked very different than the, 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 the animosity and the sort of uh, impersonalness that my, my father had with his father. Um, and so when we talk about succession, the thing that I always say is, you know, you have your incumbent generation and your succeeding generation, and there are, there are literally an infinite, infinite number of ways the succeeding generation can succeed the incumbent generation, but that infinite number of ways, the only one I can say with certainty that will not work is one that the incumbent generation designs for the succeeding generation. That succeeding generation has to not just participate, but has to drive what that succession process looks like. Um, you know, in 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 our case, probably the succession in terms of a business strategy was disruptive in some ways and not disruptive in others. It was disruptive in some ways because we chose to exit a couple of large legacy businesses at the time. But we also chose to keep a lot of things similar at the time and the management team and a lot of those things. Uh, as we look forward, you know, one of the things that could look disruptive, and it's a question mark, and, and we're not really at an active point of succession right now with where we are, but is, you know, long term, does Day and Zimmerman, does, does Day and Zimmerman and, and the Yo family remain a family business? Or do we remain a family that is economically in business together? of which Day and Zimmerman may be a part. So, you know, these are things if we're talking two, three generations out, that would look disruptive if you think, because Day and Zimmerman largely looks now as it did under our father, as it did under his father. It's bigger, it's maybe more diversified in some ways, less diversified in others. But moving forward, you know, families have the opportunity to say, well, maybe we're not all super engaged in long-term what the business looks like, but we might want to be engaged together because of the value that we can contribute to society, the difference we can make, and how Day and Zimmerman fits into that and how Day and Zimmerman evolves may or may not look disruptive over time. So let's just put some academic context here. So um, you could speak better to the largest corporations in the world that are probably publicly traded. I'm talking about the Ford Motor Companies of the world that are still could largely be defined as family businesses, but they sound like they're fitting into this conversation where economically there's still concentration of ownership by the Fords uh, and the uh, Ford family. But in terms of it being a family business, it's not what I would de- describe. And most people right. describe as a family business any longer. It doesn't look like it anymore. Right. Right. Is that what we're talking about? Is the yeah? I mean, and, and so you 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 might think more about it. It might be more of a family controlled business than an actual family business. So like it's like Comcast here in Philadelphia would be a good example of that. You know that that the Roberts family owns a minority of the stock, but they own the majority of the the essentially the voting stock, the controlling the controlling stock. And and Ford the Ford family is another great example of that. Right. And so again, or or it could even be that as the family. And the business diversifies that, you know, uh, and, and it may not be our kids, it may be our kids' kids, who knows, 
may recognize Day and Zimmerman is a really valuable, uh, successful, meaningful, important business, but that in and of itself may not be everything that we want to coalesce around. So maybe that becomes one part of a portfolio of other kinds of things. You know, we, we enjoy being owner operators of the business, having that be the majority of, of our economic engine, pouring the majority of, of any proceeds back into the business every year because we think that's best for the long-term you know, health of the company and therefore the family. If future generations have a different feeling about that, um, you know, there, there's a, there can be a bias that says, if the family wants to stick together and they want to change the focus or the lens that they look at the core business today to do that, that doesn't have to be a bad thing. You know, there's, there's still ways to make the business and the stakeholders that business successful and just have it play a different role relative to the family. So I'm sure you talk about family offices in your classes and in your networking. And what's your thinking about a family office? At what point in time? Yeah. What, what's the tipping point in terms of, and it's obviously not uh, economics, because if right. you don't have a family office, you, you know, you certainly have the economics to have one. Right. What's the, what's the, What's the tipping point? Is that yeah, someone it, wants to do a lot of diverse? It, it's a great question because you think with the business, the size that we have, it, it kind of feels like we should be a family office type family. Um, but what's interesting is my my siblings and I and our and our spouses and our children, we're only talking even with like little babies, 20 some people. So we don't have a huge cohort at this point. Now in another generation or two, you know, that will be well into three figures and it'll be a different kind of thing. But so I think, a big part of the tipping point for a family office is when your your wealth is diversified such that the operating business is a rel is is a smaller portion of your total pie than what ours is. You know yeah. where you've got passive investments, you've got large portfolios, you've got you know alternate asset classes, different kinds of things in addition to the family business. And and while my brothers and I do have some of that, both in terms of real assets and in terms of investment instruments and things that we do, those are those are relatively small compared to the business itself. So I think once that that sort of scale tends to swing a little more towards the passive investments as opposed to the active, then I think you're looking at family office and then and then some of the training and other kinds of family infrastructure things that can come with a family office would make sense also. Yeah, makes sense. I've had the uh, opportunity to work with one family office and it was a single family office. It was an individual. And as far as operating assets, most of it was real estate investments. Mm -hmm. And they were operating and managing as a very large property management company, if you will. But there was so much passive activity and investment and trading that it really was interesting how much they diversified. And yeah. it yeah. became there was too much complexity, which is uh, which right. is a challenge with a single family office and, you know, right scale and, and, and efficiency. And, and another part which, you, which you're hitting also is. Another sort of tipping point for starting a family office, is there a logical person to run that family office? Like right. often you'll see like the retiring CFO or the retiring general counsel or someone along those lines or, or a very close advisor to the family in tax or law or something, you know, who just sort of naturally evolves as, hey, we're all going to this person for these things anyway. Let's formalize that relationship. Makes a lot of sense. Hey, Bill, I want to talk a little about your book. What sure. was your first book? Um, so it was actually, so yeah, give us a little bit of the genesis of, you know, what led you to write the book. Um, I want to be clear. It, it was different than a family history, uh, or it was part of an effort of trying to do the family history. Like what was the genesis for it? Tell sure. us a little bit what the book is about. 
Um, and maybe why would why would someone want to and who would want to read that book? Yeah, no, thank, thanks for asking. And so um, the book came out of, uh, you know, my, my parents uh, in their 70s at the time starting to experience some health challenges. And in the, the um, you know, the early sort of early 2010s, if you will, my mom's health in particular started kind of bouncing up and down. And in 2014 and in 2015, um, her health took really a turn for the worse. And so we were spending a lot of time as a family with our with our parents and, and a lot of, for me, a lot of time with my dad. And one of the things that just became very aware to me was there's such a wealth of information about his story, personally, professionally, philanthropically, all the different things he's done. And we just can't let that go by the wayside. There, there's a there there in that story, both for our family and just for posterity's sake. So, you know, it started... Um, exploring having a biographer, you know, capture this guy's story. Um, and then sadly in June of 2015, our mom did pass away. And um, one of the real ahas I had out of that was recognizing that actually I wanted to be the one to research and write that story. Mm. So over the coming months, I worked with my brothers and with our business and really scaled back a lot of my management uh, activities and embarked on a full-blown research process. So I, I over the of course of several months i conducted 20 different recorded interviews with my dad had them all transcribed I interviewed, I interviewed 75 other people in his life so i had these 95 interviews thousands of pages of transcripts plus everything else you do in research and what it really culminated in was i didn't want to write a book about you know the five five things of success or the seven pitfalls to avoid i wanted to just tell a story and so I wrote a story with a little bit of the family background, a little bit of sort of the, you know, who came over on what boat from what part of the world and all that. But, but mainly it was just a story of one person's life and a person I know obviously intimately and got to know much more intimately through this process, but let readers pull from the story what they will. Um, you know, like I said, I didn't want it to be, this is the business part, here's a personal part. So, you know, readers have told me over the years that, that they've learned about how to write better performance reviews. They've learned about business strategy. They've learned about how do I sell the business to my kids? Um, you know, on a personal basis, they've learned to, to come at peace with hardships in their own lives. And, and so what was important for me and, and also for my, my family in writing this book was I didn't want to write just a puff piece. I didn't want to write, oh, look at how great this guy is, you know, and kind of lose the credibility. So even though the, the story is largely positive about his life, he's human and he has his, 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 his failings and his shortcomings and his underbelly. So you know, the book talks about, you know, estranged parent-child relationships. It talks about divorce. It talks about untimely death. It talks about drug and alcohol addiction. All, all the stuff going on in our family that goes on in every family. So, you know, while there may not be many families who can relate to the Yo family and owning a business like Day and Zimmerman, they all got all that other stuff. And that's the relatability side of it. And just, you know, not writing sort of the perfect story, but trying to write the accurate story. And so it, it, that was kind of the thing is let people take away from it what they want. And from our perspective, we now have this great artifact that talks about, you know, a huge, huge swath of our family's history that hopefully for generations to come, somebody may find some value in. Well, it sounds very interesting and uh, thinking I might download that right away because one of my favorite leadership books was Jack Welch's Straight from the Gut, mm. which was basically an autobiography that he told with his current wife, Susie Welch. Yeah. And it chased his childhood and, and, you know, I learned many things about what he did at GE that made it a best performing company, mm -hmm. uh, but also what gave him the reputation of known as Neutron Jack. <laughs> right, right. And also just where some of this, you know, came out of his childhood. And so 
you know, it's really, for me, it was one of the top leadership books that I've ever yeah. read. And a lot yeah. of what we teach as coaches today, and I say we, because there's so right. many the same stuff. I mean, people evaluate our tools that were developed by the folks right. who developed top grading and, you know, while they were inside of GE. So imagine- Yeah, and, and it's really, um, you know, in, in family business in particular, I, I believe the the inseparability of the personal and the professional, you know, that, that they really do go hand in hand. And, and, you know, like I said, a lot of the things with my father and his relationship with his father, you know, he, my father would only ever call him the old man. It was never dad, daddy, any of those kinds of things. And um, yet one of the things that I, I, I proffered having written this was that I don't know that it wasn't that, cause it wasn't that, my grandfather didn't love my father. It was that the ways my grandfather would express love were not ways that my dad could receive or recognize. For example, uh, you know, pretty much anything my dad wanted to do within the business, his dad, for the most part, said yes. You know, he might have challenged him. He might have been a little more difficult. He might have whatever, but he never really didn't give him the opportunity to be successful. And you know, at the time, my dad couldn't see that because it, he was experiencing it as this sort of torturous process to get to where he wanted to get to. But he even said in the book, he never remembers his dad ultimately saying no. So, you know, it's one of those things where that personal and professional, and even in my own generation, I'm the youngest of five. My oldest brother is the oldest of five. You know, we're 10 plus years apart. In some ways, we talk about we grew up in different households. You know, economically, we grew up in somewhat different households, you know, being the firstborn versus the fifthborn, where, where, where our parents were in their parenting journey and evolution. Um, so all those personal dynamics and, and how that fuels your communication strategy, your motivations, your, you know, your view of sort of work-life balance and different kinds of things like that, you know, the people you marry, all that comes to play when you have a family business uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in the mix. So as a leader in your business, how do you become relatable to your employees, when you have 45,000 employees, like how do you become relatable to them? How do you maintain a staff of happy employees um, while building this like family yeah, business? Yeah, and yeah. It's tremendous. No, it's, and that, that's, that's as important, John, that is any topic that, that we could talk about. And so there's a couple of things. I mean, one thing we talk about all the time is we have to run the business like a business and we have to always prioritize the health and success of the business, you know, as, as a top priority. If, if we don't have a healthy growing business, kind of all this other stuff almost kind of doesn't matter. So we, we run the business like a business. So we, we, we pay people to market. We have, we try to have a valuable, um, you know, different an employee value proposition, um, well-defined benchmark jobs so that people will understand the work they're coming to do and they have the tools and the empowerment to be successful in the work they're trying to do. We're a very diverse business, so people can always sort of get a day in Zimmerman pay stub, but can do six different things over 10 or 20 year career that they want to do. So that, that's a key part of it. Secondly, is we have to be visible and we have to work hard. And it's one of the things that we talk about people with the family. If you want to come to work at the business, Guess what? People are going to notice, you know, what time your when your car gets in, you know, how much you're there. You know, those, those things get noticed. And if you can work hard, set a good example, but also show that no work is above what you'll do. So one of the things I talk a lot about in, in, in business development activities is I'll tell our salespeople, you know, hey, treat me as just another piece. You're the chess player. Treat me as another piece on the chessboard. You know, it, it, we don't need to talk that don't do this for my sake, because if you're successful, then we're successful. It doesn't work the other way around. 
And then the last thing we talk about is we, we talk a lot about this idea about stickiness. And stickiness for us means how do we keep the family sticky and relevant to the business? And how do we keep the business sticky and relevant to the family? Kind of this two-way of looking at it. And that, and that doesn't just mean careers. That can mean exposure. That can mean ambassador-type activities. That can mean being involved in different events. That can mean family events where, where, where business things are discussed. So, for example, a few years ago, um, we got a couple of the families together who had school-aged children, and we bought, you know, the game Jenga, where those blocks all stand up and you pull the things out. Well, there's giant Jenga you can get where the, where the blocks are probably six, eight inches each. So we played giant Jenga, and this was right after I did the book. We On half the, the blocks, we put some fun fact about the business or a fact about the business. I think they're fun, but I get nerdy on that stuff. And the other half, we did fun facts about the family. So every time somebody would pull a block out, they, they'd read the thing, there might be a little discussion, and then we'd move on. So that would be one tiny little way about working on the stickiness side of things. That's great and very clever. So tell us what is family family lytics, rather. Sure. So family lytics um, is a, a, a term that I coined a few years ago. And, and I, I talked earlier about how important it is to network and to talk to other families and to just gather information and gather and gather information. So. My family and I have spent a lot of time in conferences, you know, in collaborations, working with other families. And, and there's a really neat and, and unwritten, but not needing to be written sort of guideline for family, family business members in conversations where there's a confidentiality that you just don't ever have to worry about. And so there's, there's a way to share openly and candidly with people who walk that proverbial mile in the same shoes you do. And you know, at, at at dinner one night, you might be talking with them about you know shareholder agreements, and breakfast the next morning, they might be talking to you about a family foundation. You know, it's this constant give and take. So, as all this information continued to come in, I talked about the master plan. What got distilled out of this was okay. There are some you know there are some tenets and some things to abide by that kind of make sense, and 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 that seem to be these best practices. So I kind of just wrapped that in this idea about family lytics. So it's really like kind of big data or data and analytics from a qualitative perspective having to do with what are the best practices for running family businesses. Interesting. So, mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your faith-based activities or how faith, your faith, ties in with the business, because it seems to be an important part for you. And in my experience, my clients who exhibit a lot of faith, um, they tend to be more coachable. Mm -hmm. um, they have more belief that there may be something outside of themselves uh, that's a greater power and, or, or maybe there's a greater good or there's a greater purpose or a service. Mm -hmm. And so they seem to be very connected to that. And I find that they're more coachable because they're more growth oriented personally mm -hmm. and professionally. And right. um, these are the antithesis of my clients who don't stay with me very long, who are just basically, they're frustrated with folks because they'd make too many mistakes and there's not enough money being made at the end of the day and they want more. Um, those are the antithesis. Those are not typically my right. clients. They're not right. Right. But so tell us how faith weaves together with business for you without running basically like a faith-based business. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great question, a really important question. And, and I'll just, I'll, work off that last comment you said, you know, we're not a, we're not a faith-based business. So, you know, you, you, I'm sure a lot of your clients, you know, a lot of families have 
have faith written right into their mission statements. It, it's part and partial to what they do. You know, that intentionally is not how we run our business. Um, but where the commonality really comes from is we are really a values driven and a values centric business. So the, the core values of our business are safety, integrity, diversity, and success. And there are, you know, definitions and meanings and things behind all four of those, but they all speak to issues about the importance of relationships and the importance of treating people with dignity and the importance of having people have, have a positive engaging experience and about being successful working together. So, you know, whatever your faith background may be or may not be, for me personally, I resonate very strongly with those things because my faith background, which is a very important part of me, stands for those same ideals. So I, I kind of like almost what I view as an intellectual exercise personally about how do I, how do I live into and, and be satisfied and express what my faith tenets are in an environment where we don't want to be so faith forward in one particular faith tradition that we may, you know, un, un, uh, involuntarily alienate others or, or have people assume certain things about who we are because what the latest you know, news poll is saying about this faith or that faith or how different things are. So, but that whole idea about how core values and the importance and centrality of people and how we treat people um, is how, for me, faith shows up. And, and um, as I said, you know, we have made the decision not to be faith forward in terms of any of our language or our mission values, those kind of things, but it certainly fuels underneath a lot of who we are bringing ourselves to work. Makes sense. So let me ask you about one of your core values. Um, so we aligned, by the way, on this thinking, um, except I tell my clients whenever they're starting on that core values discovery process, that there's one core value that they can have, and that's integrity. Mm. And the reason why I say is because there's so much baggage that comes along with integrity and everyone's got a different definition of what integrity looks like. Yeah. And I, I can't say, um, to sort of steal from Simon Sinek, who's, you know, will say like, hey, Bill, um, be more integrity or have more integrity. Like, right, right. like you can't be more of it. It's no, not an no. so, so tell me a little bit about what integrity means inside of your company and why you hold on to that as a value. Yeah. No, and, I, and I, I appreciate you, Jonathan, recognizing that because it is one of those, it's almost like a platitude that people throw around, right? Like a table stake sort of thing. Um, right. and, and I also agree with you that it's it's binary digital. You either have it or you don't, right? You can't have, there aren't shades of integrity or honesty, right? So I, I'm totally tracking with you on that. So for us, um, you know, we have a, a corporate motto, we do what we say. And it's something that we've had around for, I don't know, 30, 40 years. There's kind of a funny story I have in the book, how, how it comes to be. But the whole idea is we do what we say. And that's both for our clients, but also internally. So if we're making commitments in a proposal or in a meeting or different kinds of things, we are telling our clients integrity is a core value. We do what we say is our corporate motto. It's trademarked. We wear it on pins. We have it on signs. Hold us to this standard. But it also applies internally. If, you, if we're coworkers and you call me and I'm busy, I say, I want to get back to you this afternoon. If I don't do that, that culture breaks down. Yeah. And it's, it's particularly since most of our business is a service business, we do have, as, as I mentioned, our manufacturing business, but since most of our business is a service business, being known for being dependable and accountable in that regard is something that's really important to us. So it, it is, 
you know, it, it may to the outside seem like I said that platitude or that table stake, but this whole idea of we do what we say with our culture, it's the point if if you're not comfortable with that, you're just not going to, you're not going to thrive here. You're not going to make it here. It, it just won't fit. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. And I would tell my client, make the, we do what we say, your, uh, your value. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right. you know, away from that sort of arbitrary integrity. Yeah. 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 Hey, this has been a great conversation. Appreciate all the things that you've had to share. Um, anything you want to leave us with? It, that you haven't covered? I mean, sure. Um, you know, one thing that, that just comes to mind is this, is this idea of hats, you know, the hats we wear. And it's something that, you know, my family, we talk a lot about, my brothers and I talk a lot about is, you know, trying to be intentional about what hat we're wearing at what time. Because obviously, at any given time, we're wearing the hat of, of siblings, we're wearing the hat of relatives, of uncles, of husbands, of brothers-in-law, of co-owners, of manager, of subordinate, of employee. You know, we have all these different hats that we're always wearing, but we really do try to be very intentional about, okay, in this particular conversation, we're wearing our owner hat. In this particular conversation, this is really a, a, a brother hat or an uncle hat. Um, my brother, who's our chairman CEO, he has the ongoing challenge in our shareholder discussions. He's both one of the three owners and he's the CEO. So he's you know, that principal agent kind of thing. He's that all in one. And so he's very, uh, very disciplined about when he'll tell us, hey, gang, look, I'm having this conversation as the CEO, not as an owner. And it's helpful to have that perspective. So I think just trying, trying even though we know we always wear all the hats all the time, trying to be explicit and declarative about, OK, in this conversation, this is the hats we should be wearing. Are we all cool with that? And having that coach there to... <clears throat> to hold you to that is, is something that I really can't impress enough about how, how important that's been for our journey. I like that. I, I remember the story that Ernie Dowd uh, tells in the beginning of his book. I think the book is called Hats Off. Mm. And, it, and it's basically where he invites his kid over to come over to, to the pool, have a conversation with him. He's wearing two hats. They, they look like MAGA hats, to be honest. They were red right. with lettering. And right. one says, you know, dad, and the right. other the CEO and uh, he's like wearing the dad hat and he's telling his kid how much he loves him. And then he switch hats and says, puts on the CEO hat and he says, kid, you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Like, yeah. Well, that, 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 that's a version of hats. Yeah. That's a version of hats. But I'm thinking that as a, uh, maybe um, I'll work on my hat model as <laughs> an alternative to the three circles uh, model that John Davis put together. Many yes. years ago. So, right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Bill, um, if people want to learn more about your company or what you're doing at Wharton or your book, uh, is there a place that you would like to send them to? Yeah, no, sure. Uh, you know, best place is um, e- either our company website, dayzim.com, D-A-Y-Z-I-M, or my personal website, which is just bill-yo at yo or bill- bill-yo.com. And so bill-yo.com. Yeah, yoh.com and that'll link you to the company. It'll link you to my book. I have a upcoming faith-based book actually that, that's coming out here uh, shortly, and um, and a lot of different things that we do in the family business space are all featured there, and and where I speak and the opportunities to talk with folks like you. So, thanks for being on the show. So, thanks, John. Folks, you know the drill. If you got some value out of this show, um, give us a great rating on your podcast listening app of choice. Also. Uh, tell other people about this uh, show. And uh, if you know of a good guest for one of our upcoming episodes, um, reach out to me 
here at the Disruptive Successor Show. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is sponsored by myself, Jonathan Goldhill, and my company, The Goldhill Group, where we provide coaching for growing companies. I'm Jonathan Goldhill, and my purpose is simple, to guide entrepreneurial leaders in family businesses towards more freedom and fulfillment. I want entrepreneurs to get clarity around the changes that will make them and their businesses more successful so they can experience the same freedom I've enjoyed in my life. Our proven practices challenge business owners to think differently about their business and how they're running it and quite literally become game changers in our clients' companies. Learn more at the goldhillgroup.com website where you can schedule your free strategy session. Thank you for joining us on the Disruptive Successor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, review, and share with a friend who would benefit from the message. If you're interested in picking up a copy of my book, Disruptive Successor, go to DisruptiveSuccessor.com.